Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I am with my new friend, Lauren Omani, who, according to this computer, has a male voice. Oh. I forgot to change it to female before we started recording. You can't right. change midway. Lauren, we're here in Club N. Why is it called Club N? And what is Club N? Well, I believe that it's simply Club, Club Murdoch. That's about as simple as it gets. It's just the club where the academics come to, to meet and chat. Hang out, escape the great unwashed. Well, occasionally you see students in here. Are they allowed well. in? Uh, there's no there's no bouncer at the door keeping just, them out. But it's just a cultural barrier. They know not I think so. Or yeah. they, they prefer upstairs, perhaps, or the, the grounds. The Food's better for vegans upstairs, I can tell you. Oh, really? Anyway, okay. we're here at Murdoch University in Perth, where Lauren is a professor, and I'm visiting here at the moment. And she was teaching a class that I was briefly involved in called Intro to Media Studies. But tell us what else you're doing, what you're up to these days. In, just in my research and in my Yeah, career, your research. Yeah. Let's do research. Okay, we'll do research. So about two and a half months ago, I submitted my PhD. Hooray! Wow, dude. Yes, cool. which is great. Um, and that uh, is in communication media studies. Yes. The focus was on chick lit mm. or contemporary fiction for women, which is otherwise known. Slightly politer term. Yes. Which do you use? I actually, well, in the thesis, I used chick lit mm. because that's how it's marketed. Mm. That's mm. how it's uh, referred to by, by readers and a lot of the writers as well. It's become a commercial brand in itself. To, yeah, it's a technical to, term in a sense, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. in a way. Yeah. A lot of authors do not like it. Uh, they, they prefer to rebadge their work by another name, which I think is uh, really interesting in itself. So there's there's a few issues around around that phrase, chicklet. What is the difference between romance fiction and chicklet? Well, it depends what kind of romance fiction you're talking about. So if you're talking about mass market romance fiction, mm. which is produced by publishing houses like Harlequin and other publishers, uh, the difference is merely stylistic a lot of the time, that writers under the Harlequin brand are often writing to particular uh, particular set of criteria or guidelines in terms of characterisation or word length or themes or construction of particular characters. Whereas Chicklit is commercial fiction. The authors appear to have a lot of control over the content, so they get to decide on the types of protagonists they have, how many protagonists, whether it's multi-plot, how long it is. There seems to be more control by authors. So I, I knew some people who wrote uh, some romance fiction in the 70s. Yes. And they certainly had a formula they were required to meet. And I remember Albert Moran edited a special issue of Continuum, which used to be the in-house magazine journal here at Murdoch on publishing, and he interviewed some people who worked in that genre. So there's, there are the usual formulaic rules applied to chip but they're not industrially centralised and governed by 
mass market publishers. And is I'm, that right? Yeah, that, that's exactly my understanding that if you go on to, say, the Penguin website, there's not a list of stylistic mm. guidelines or word limit guidelines. It becomes more of the editor's choice in, in what what kind of novels might sell in the moment or mm. which will appeal to readers, that kind of thing. And what are the key... I mean, many people listening, including myself, will have read and enjoyed Chick Lit, but many, like me, won't be experts, whereas there may be some who are experts, and I've only read four or five of the novels. Which ones have you read? Oh, well, I've, you know, read Ms. Fielding. Yes, uh, Ms. Fielding. Ms. Fielding. Have you read all of her books? No, but I've read I've read not only the ones everybody's read in the, the movie, I've also read one which is a secret agent. Yeah, Olivia Jules and Olivia. the overactive imagination. Yes, I've read that, and which is quite different actually in certain ways. Did I've you read, enjoy it? I did. I thought it was kind of fun. I mean, it's not wonderfully written, uh, but I enjoyed the character. I enjoyed her feistiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the kind, of the female twist on a James Bond yeah, type of figure. Plot. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that she's. Always somehow or other excluded yes. from things. Yes. Even though if she were a bloke, she'd be at the centre of knowledge. Yes. As a girly girl, she's not. And she's also frustrated in love and sex, but also enjoying love and sex. So, yeah, I, those I like. tensions that are. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So I, I kind of did enjoy it, I think. But I'm not an expert. So for those of us who may be in that category, we've read a bit, but we don't know that much. What are some of the changes? Where will be the origin myth of Chiplet? The origin and myth. The origin myth of it. When is when did it originally? Oh, when did it? Oh, when did allegedly it Allegedly start. Oh, well, who named it? That kind of. Well, thing. the first thing that I must say about Chiplet is that it is a contemporary genre. So mm. Mm. it emerged in the mid 1990s with Bridget Jones's Diary, yeah. and um, it just so happened that at the same time, Candice Bushnell published Sex and the City, the, oh, yes. well, the novella. Yeah, based yes. on her columns yes. in the New York Observer. I yes. used to read her columns when they came out. Yeah, yes. I actually have read that book too. Yes. And um, at the same time, Marion Keyes was writing her first book, Watermelon, which was published about the same time. Okay. So this all happened in the mid-90s, and there were, I think Bridget Jones's Diary is really the text that had the, the mass appeal, the mass audience, and was the book that people passed to their family members and friends. And, um, Interesting. And so, does this articulate to the rom-com at all? Because this is also the heyday of the rom-com, isn't it? The romantic comedy, uh, you know, Notting Hill. Absolutely. And all of that, around I, the same period. Yeah, yeah, that emergence in the 90s of those those movies, Pretty Woman, mm. in the, I think that was about... 1990. Yeah. The Julia and Roberts, Hugh Grant persona. Yes. So, I, I think that there's probably an argument to be made around the links between these kinds of texts for women and uh, the increasing economic independence of women who can afford to buy them and want to access them, but also can be marketed through these texts to buy certain products, especially if you think about Sex in the City and how strong all the consumer brands are, Jimmy Choo Shoes different kinds of clothes, the fashion. Uh, it's almost an indirect form of marketing. The Apple laptop. Yes, absolutely. Rarely spoken of, but the most overt. Of course, HBO claims that it doesn't permit the production houses that make its programs to engage in product placement as a means of amortising 
their investment. Mm. Ho fucking ho, I would have to say to that. But whatever. Mm. Um, what were those Italian shoes in Sex and the City? The Manalo Blahnik. Manalo Blahnik, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it is about accidentally or deliberately a successful demographic targeting of the emergence of the female consumer with disposable income for herself rather than the family. Yes. Is that right? Uh, well, that's, that's one of my understandings of, of how okay. this links to the real the real world demographic because whenever you've got a successful text you've got to think about well why is that text why was Bridget Jones a star is so successful yes. and all of these spin-offs that have come yeah. as a result all of the, the the novels that have been published the rom-com as you mentioned there's obviously a market there and in it you would I should eat less chocolate, smoke fewer cigarettes, drink less, but I want to drink, smoke and eat. I should not be obsessed with men, but I want a man. <laughs> and you're referring to her list of New Year's resolutions at Am the I? start of, yeah, yeah. That's at the start of Bridget Jones' diary. Okay. Yeah. And learn how to work the video recorder. <laughs> <laughs> now that dates it. Yeah. The rest of it still sounds quite contemporary. It does. Go to the gym more. Is that, is that in it? Or I think so. Is that later? Yeah, it was lose X number well, of pounds. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the most interesting yeah. thing was the publication last year of the uh, the sequel. Oh, the, where, where the Mr. Wright dies, doesn't he? Yeah, Mr. Darcy is killed in, <laughs> in, in, in Darfur. Right. And... Um, and so Bridget is a widow with two small children. Right. This is Mad About the Boys, the book's right. name, but she ends up having an affair with a much younger man. Right, right. So it's, it's interesting in a way to see that trajectory of the genre from the mid-1990s through yeah. with a single heroine who's you know, desperate and dateless through to this um, more, she's not accomplished, but she's, she's getting better, um, but married... A widow now with two children. But she's emergent as an emergent milf yes. in that sense, Yeah, right? in a way, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I've not read that one. I read the controversy about it. Yes. Uh, it's been some of that. So you've mentioned British and US examples so far. Yes. Did this take off in other markets as well? Abs and is it still popular? Absolutely. Uh, it definitely took off in other markets. So you've had as well as obviously the United States and the UK, you've had what's called um, fragrant literature in Indonesia. Fragrant <laughs> literature? What they call it. What? The, when you open the, the page, does there a lovely odour? I would hope so. Yeah, and with e-books as well, I trust. Yeah, um, oh, that's, just the phrase that, that's just what they, that's yeah. what they call it. You've yeah. also had um, a very success, successful novel out of Saudi Arabia, The, the uh -huh. Girls of Riyadh. Uh -huh. um, it was very popular and all about the, the dating trials and tribulations of a woman in, in that culture. They, there was a program on Al Jazeera English about that, not a drama, but mm. where reporters would go out late at night to secret spots yes. with uh, other women to talk about blokes mm -hmm. and whatnot. Yeah, very interesting yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and, yeah. and of course, Australia, we've had uh -huh. uh, a really a strong emergence of, of chiclet written from an Australian context. Ah. Who were some of the leading writers? So, um, you've got Melanie Lebroy, uh, Rebecca Sparrow, you've got, um, just trying to think of other names, Catherine Jinks has written a few, there's quite a few authors right, right. In, in the group, and then 
from that you've almost got subgenres that have emerged out of that. So you've got um, indigenous chiclish, which is written by Anita Heiss. Um, she calls it Kuri Lit because mm-hmm. she's, she regards herself as a Kuri woman from um, Sydney. This refers to one of the, the words used to describe different Aboriginal formations in different states of Australia. Yes, um, and as well as uh, the Koori chiclet, you've also got chiclet that is out of urban centres because that's a really strong uh, a strong characteristic across the whole genre is a lot of the novels are set in cities. Very however, urban. However, in Australia, um, we've seen the emergence of the uh, rural romance, which in a way is, is kind of at the side of chiclet, but there's mm. quite a lot of common uh, common characteristics between them, and also the Red Dirt Romance, which is uh, set in Western Australia at the moment, the novels are, set in Western Australia up north in, in mining and construction environments, and that's a really interesting permutation of the genre wow. as far as I'm concerned. And are there any queer chiclet novels in Australia or in these other markets, or is it all pretty heterosexual? Um, the, ones, the ones that I've encountered have all been... Heterosexual, but um, I, I would imagine there might be some out there. Whether or not they're in the uh, the dimmicks down the road, the bookshops on the high street, I, I don't know Another that we'd see them. You might have to go to a queer or a gay uh, bookshop to, right, to find them. Right, right, right. Now, my assumption, although I don't know this, is that these are books that are marketed as fiction, not literature, even though the word lit is in chick lit as a title. And I don't know whether that's done in Australia, but in the United States, there are different segments of a bookstore, be it virtual or bricks and mortar. And literature is not genre fiction. Uh, It is not romance. It's not crime. It is great men and women writing great novels that will be taught in universities, in high schools, or trying to be thought of as being such. Not mass market, really. Yeah? So what has been the reception of the critical establishment, uh, the reception of Chicklet by the critical establishment? Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because um, a number of writers have, have defended themselves against these kinds of claims about what constitutes great literature versus your average pink book from um, your high street bookshop. Um, but there are publications in academic literature about people that have taught chiclet in English programs, in particularly in the United States, and done so uh, in comparison to canonical fiction, mm. with the big L, as you might, right. you might put it. So I think there's a, there's a, mixed, a mixed reception, in a way. And what about the feminist reaction to chiclet? Feminist reactions. Oh, that's that's an interesting one as well. I mean, again, that's mixed as well. Um, there's been some claims that chiclet is anti-feminist or post-feminist. Um, other academics have published journal articles that have defended chiclet against those claims and, and said, well, actually, there's more going on 
in these books than some people give credit for. And, and Louise the, I mean, Mensch, feminist. Sorry? Louise Mensch, feminist. <laughs> well, I mean, one, one point to make is that um, we have to keep in mind that this is a developing genre and the books that were written in the 90s, um, they're, they're different to the, slightly different to the books now, I think, mm. especially the really well-established authors like Marion Keyes. They've used their novels to engage with and um, explore some really obvious obvious mm. feminist issues mm. like domestic mm. violence. Mm. So they've used their writing as a platform mm. to, to access these. So um, we can't make a, a generalised claim that these right. books are, are not feminist. There is a feminist engagement that goes on. Um, Imelda Whalahan would say that they're in dialogue with feminism. She talked about that in her book, The Feminist Bestseller. Um, and that's what my, my research is about, looking at that feminist... And there's, there's just no no one rule for the whole genre. Different writers engage in different ways with feminist issues and represent the heroines in different kinds of permutations of them. So, so tell us about those feminist aspects, those feminist dialogues, pardon me, that you participate in with your research. In, in my thesis? Yeah. Well, I mean... The main thing that I was looking at, I was looking at the, the te almost the textual convention, so I was looking at narrative, I was looking at the construction of heroines and, and themes, and I was looking at them in relation to romance and feminism, because I wanted to look at the tensions that come about when we put romance and feminism together. There seems to be uh, a difficult relationship, in a way, between these things. So, I mean, some of the observations that I've made in Australian chick lit, because that's my focus, is that often there's a lot of contradiction that goes on. So you might have um, a heroine that uh, doesn't say that she's feminist, yet she shows you that she's feminist. She will um, help launch a legal case that addresses discrimination in the workplace or... Um, you know, she'll, she'll do other things that, that can be read through that feminist gaze. So, I don't know, there's there's a lot a lot to be said, I think, in the genre about this. As well, the novels do address feminist themes, so when you start to look at the rural romance, where there's still, um, in the sociological literature in particular, they talk about gender inequality in rural Australia, simply because of the distance. Isolation of women. Isolation, yeah. And um, so, and there's still this perception that some spaces in uh, the rural context are very masculine and or, or dominated by men and women are excluded, whether it's because of the distance or because there's a cultural expectation around certain spaces. And you see novels like um, Jillaroo by Rachel Treasure or The Farmer's Wife by Rachel Treasure starting to address this and push women through these spaces and, and see what they are capable of. Could you tell people what a Jillaroo is? A Jillaroo? It's uh, basically it's a, a female farm worker um, who can do work with stock or um, you know, sometimes um, mechanical work or um, there's a range of different jobs that they have to do, but a woman that works on a, on a farm or a station in Australia. Wow. Now, my recollection, I'm thinking back 30 years to Jan Radway's book, Reading the Romance, yes. which was about women reading romance fiction. Mm. Um, it's a standard classic text. Uh, Jan was a folklorist. 
and she corresponded with a number of people who read uh, Harlequin, I guess it would have been. Yes. Do you find that with your research there's a naturally occurring research group of people who have views and experiences that open up and just talk to you then they say, what are you doing? And you say, I'm writing a PhD and they start to fall asleep but they politely ask what it is and they say, it's on chiclet and boom, off they go. Yeah, um, you, do, you do get that. But even just talking to uh, friends and family or if I'm out and about and I start, you know, like um, a tradesman who'll come to my house and she'll ask what I do and um, we'll start having a conversation and he'll talk about the, the books that his wife reads or something. It's it's interesting having those conversations because most people have read a chick lit book or they've seen a film adaptation of a chick lit book. So those conversations are quite frequent. Do you find a gender difference in responses to what you work on? Uh, I haven't. I haven't noticed one. I, I'm not looking for one, but that might be um, me and the way I talk about my research. Maybe I slightly. Um, I phrase it slightly differently when I'm talking to someone who, like, say, a female friend who I know already reads the books. Um, I'll maybe talk to her in a slightly different way than the way that I talk to Anne about it. But I haven't really noticed um, any, any gender differences. What do you think the difference would be between the way you talk about it to her and the way you talk about it to him? Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, I probably I probably wouldn't use the phrase chiclet if I was giving a synopsis of my research because I, to, I don't to a man, to a man. because I, I don't know if I'd necessarily expect most men to know what that is so I'd probably say I'm examining uh, feminism and romance because men tend to know what those two things are um, really <laughs> well I hope so can you tell me <laughs> sorry <laughs> well roughly um, <laughs> and um, and I'd probably say in terms of contemporary Australian fiction or mm, contemporary yeah. Australian novels and then I'd say otherwise known as chiclet so I'd probably put the chiclet at the end after I'd given them a rough idea of what I'm doing whereas um, perhaps I have an expectation that most women would already know what chiclet is since it's marketed directly at them. So. But it's interesting that these guys even know what their wives are reading. That's Sometimes they do. a step do. forward beyond what I would have anticipated. <laughs> I've just discovered, listeners, that in the place where we currently find ourselves, there are things called men's sheds everywhere. And these aren't at the back of someone's house. There are signs up on the street that say, Frio, which means for mantle, men's shed. I used to live across the road from that men's there, shed. Apparently, I discovered last night, I saw this sign on the bus, I thought, Christ, what the fuck's that? And then I discovered they're all over the country. Yes, they are. And they're places where men go to speak to one another about their problems. And they ask what this really entails. Apparently, it's, they just take equipment there and do odd things. jobs and give them and help yeah. people. Yeah, so it actually sounds quite good rather than completely narcissistic. I think they're using, because they do a lot of carpentry and metal work yeah. and, and things like that and they use the, the making of things to talk to about to be together because it's yes. been disclosed that when they play golf they don't speak to one another no because one's down the other end of the fairway <laughs> you know it's not really just you're shouting but in a, in a small space where you're, you're kind of working on things together right but there's a huge amount of noise 
thing made by these tools. Presumably you're wearing masks to protect your eyes from soldering. Maybe they have lots of tea breaks or something. How much profound emotional communion, as funded by God knows what, is committed by this? I find it's it all very dubious. Are you going to go and stick your head I'm inside one? No, my head might never come out again. Oh, there I'm are, sure. There are going to be men with leather masks on no, waiting to take won't. chainsaws to people like me. I'm not going anywhere near such a place. Anyway, um, so it's, I find that quite fascinating, actually, the way people respond and become part of one's understanding of one's project. Mm. You know, that's really, really interesting. Can you tell us about some of the differences between the urban and the rural? Because these are obviously important to your research. You've mentioned isolation. Yes. That's one. Yes, in the rural novels in particular. Mm. I mean, in the urban novels, obviously you're you're in a big city. There are lots of shops. There's a big choice of men because that's a preoccupation of many chick protagonists. They're looking for a date or a relationship a lot of the time, or trying to avoid a bad um, date that they've had. Um, so shopping, a good choice of men usually. Uh, careers are often located in the city. So we've got those those things come through in urban novels in particular. And then when we move to the rural novels, often the women are very isolated on, on farms, in a, often in a, a close environment where they're working with um, family members, sometimes multi-generational uh, families in a way. So they've got fathers and, and mothers and even children and brothers and sisters with families of their own. So they're in a more... Um, I suppose, um, just a yeah, family, mm. family environment. Um, so some of the differences, I mean, when we move to the bush, obviously the environment becomes more important. There's often more lengthy descriptions of place and the, uh, the bush and the characters in the bush doing physical things. When you look at urban novels, often you don't get a lot of that description of the setting. Um, in terms of the physicality of the place, whereas in rural novels you really do get descriptions of wildlife, of animals on the farm, of plant life, of environmental issues such as um, you know droughts and floods and uh, weeds that are growing. So there seems to be a very strong sense of... Um, of the context in, in the rural novels and a strong relationship not just between people but between the characters and Lauren, can you explain for listeners from elsewhere the concept of the bush? The bush? Yeah. Okay, that's, that's an interesting one. Well, I mean, when I think about it, I think about urban as in urban centres and cities, then there's the suburban, which are the suburbs that surround those cities, and then we talk about the rural, which is the farming uh, communities outside of the suburbs, which in Australia, as you know, can extend quite a way out. And then almost beyond that is um, is a place that is sometimes bushy with lots of trees and plant life, but sometimes it, um, it's an absence of, of that, you know, when we start to get onto the edge of the desert. So, no, the bush... Uh, so... It's a place beyond the rural in a way, or on the edge of rural. Um, with Chicklet as part of Australian literature, which I guess is one of its concentric circles, as it were, yes. what is the tradition of the bush in 
writing here? In Australia, yeah. oh, I think there's a very a very strong tradition of it in mm. in historical mm-hmm. fiction and, and poetry. You think about Henry Lawson, uh, one of our famous poets, national treasures in Australia, and um, and we think about you know, Waltz and Matilda. There's this very um, the bush is almost central to our identities in a way. This, you know, the notion of trees and scrub and animals, and and that um, sometimes it's a kind of a void or a dark place beyond the city, beyond the suburbs. Um, but other times it can be um, just when you go out to a national park and and there's no sign of human life anywhere. Mm. Is that your sense of the bush? What do you? I just think it's men in leather masks with chains, wielding chainsaws. When they're having their day off from the free and men's show. Oh, shed. right, right. Well, presumably there's something here about the pioneering myth of white masculinity mm-hmm. and the attempt to deny Aboriginal ownership in participation in oneness with the land. Presumably there's something there also about distance from Europe where these people felt they had some kind of spiritual home that hadn't worked for them and presumably something there about the idea of foundational myths of the nation that are to do in part with what lots of people did at one point in Australian history but also to do with the economic significance and hence the socio-cultural one of rural industries. And the contradiction in all of this, the sense of this is dark and dangerous, as per the Mad Max mythology, is that, of course, nobody lives there. Uh, Everybody in Australia lives in cities. It's the most urban country in the world. And because it was created during the Industrial Revolution, people are, in fact, not self-sufficient at all. They're entirely dependent on the technologized division of labor that comes with urban life. So I think that's some of the setting and some of the uh, current implication. Uh, And that's why you get the negative and the positive, the sense of authenticity that in fact has nothing to do with how people live their lives, by and large. But in rural fiction of the kind you're describing, there is presumably a realist component. I mean, these are about people who do live in the book. Yes, and I mean, when I think about Rachel Treasure's Jillaroo, the protagonist feels that she has a really strong relationship with her environment Mm -hmm. and there's a sense that she must preserve it. She has Mm -hmm. to protect it in some cases from um, the men in power who are around her, her her father in the first novel and then her her husband in the second novel um, who and and a mining company who is interested in in buying the family, family farm and um, so she almost has she does have a spiritual connection to to the place and um, you know it's a narrative strategy to name the river the Rebecca River after that's the river that flows through the the land parcel that she she lives on but um, it it also it's suggestive of that that relationship and that kind of that feeling that she has to be protected and, and, and protect 
preserve it in a way that keeps it the same as it was when she was growing up and and trying to roll back years of neglect, years of degradation, lots of chemicals, lots of um, agricultural growing of crops and things. And in the tradition of bush literature, you mentioned Henry Lawson, I mentioned pioneering masculinity. What is the woman's role or what are women's roles? In, in the historical fiction. Well, yeah. I mean, one one particular... The Drover's Wife? Yeah, The Drover's Wife. I mean, one, one, um, one particular type of female character in that fiction that I, that I recall and has come up in the rural novels that I look at is the notion of the garrisoned woman, which is... Garrisoned woman. Garrisoned woman, who uh, in early settler life, she was in Australia with her husband, but um, she had a, a kind of a barrier that, whether it be a physical or just a cultural barrier, that prevented her leaving the house or the direct surrounds of the house because she was, or she had a perception that it was dangerous, that there, there were animals or the unknown or perhaps people outside of the house and its surrounds that would... So it sort of leads to the captivity narrative in US history. Yeah, so um, there's a notion of the garrisoned mentality um, which comes through in some of the the academic work around rural Australia and and looking at women's diaries out of that early period in settler history and women not wanting to to leave because they had fear and um, trepidation. And that that still, in a way, comes through in rural romances, some, uh, especially the, the generation... That's uh, like the mother, the mother generation, the mother of the protagonist, and uh, tends to often have a kind of garrisoned mentality, or um, the mother of a prospective partner might have that that mentality, which is interesting. Has to be navigated by the heroine. Yes, the heroine who's usually really plucky and wants to go into all of these different places and you know be out you know, with the cattle and doing all the farm work and right. and those things. And Is sex a compulsory component of the genre? No, not at all. It doesn't have to be there. Right. Um, no, it doesn't have to be there. Some, some novels are more graphic than others, but I mean, um, especially in the urban novels, in a way a lot of the time it's left up to the reader's imagination. <laughs> Some of the time, or or they delay the um, the couple and their uh, relationship to the end. So again, the reader is kind of left to think about, well, what was the progression of that relationship? There might be a few steamy scenes, but it tends to be quite. No finality is Aquinas would put it. Sorry. No finality is Aquinas would put it. Yeah. Well, there can be fun. There can be fun. Last question from me, but please add anything that you want. What's the future of this genre? Is it just going to keep going like that and I'm making a gesture as if I'm creating a graph that's going upwards as well as sideways? Is it increasing in popularity? Is it peaked? It's been about 20 years. 
It's just just getting towards 20, yeah, just shy of 20. It's about 18 now. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. keys to the door. <laughs> um, oh, look, I, in the last few years, we've seen the rise of the erotic romance with uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. And I think, in a way, uh, that's been a, a spin-off genre that maybe publishers have started to put money behind and... and to sign up new authors to, to feed into that. Um, some of the established chick lit authors, I think they're going to be going for quite to, um, quite a while. So there, there is a future to it. It's by no means a dead genre, as some people proclaim, but we have to acknowledge that it does evolve, it does change, and there are sub-genres that emerge within it and that make it more diverse. Who is proclaiming its end? Oh, just at various times in the last 20 years, there have been moments when someone will come out and say, oh, Chicklet's dead. You know, this, As if they this particular, to. yeah, like this particular book, which was meant to be a bestseller, didn't actually sell that well, or um, that, it's what's called a market. It doesn't mean exactly. the entire end of a genre. No, it means a market operated such that one particular example didn't succeed. Exactly. So, yeah, you, there are moments, and and um, but again, I I think there's a lot of life in women's fiction generally at the mm. moment. So. Well, in many countries, it's become very apparent empirically that more women are reading than men, and especially reading fiction. Yes. But when men read, they tend to read non-fiction and women read both. Mm. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's, uh, novels in general yes. tend to be a woman's genre, regardless of what they are. I think the question that probably needs to be asked is is how long do we have the book, the paper, hard copy yeah, book, yeah. Um, rather than particular styles or types How do you of buy your chick lit? Do you buy hard copy. Hard copy. They're all hard copies. Can you tell us how many you've got, roughly? Uh, um, I said I have uh, one more question. Look at them, oh, I can't yeah, be stopped. I've got three. <laughs> um, oh, I, there's at least 150 on um, my bookcase at home. Well, that's very restrained, especially it when you've got the alibi that you did a doctor I know. On. And how they, are they organised by publisher, date, cover art? It's a good question, but actually I ran out of space and I had to kind of double them up on the on the shelf, so they're just kind of, at the moment... They're all they're over, just, yeah, by shape. Mixed up. The Australian novels probably have their own shelf, just so I can access them. An Australian yeah. shelf. Yes, but um, I'm, I'm pretty certain they're all mixed up, so... Since but you I, I, I have also borrowed quite a few from the library as well. Since you handed in the dissertation, have you yes. been able to go back and enjoy the genre or have you had to put it aside and just do other things? I have had to put it aside. Yeah. But um, I have, I've, I'm still buying the books. They're sitting there waiting to be read. So Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for educating me a lot about the genre that really interests me. Uh, but where I've only read four or five examples, I'm going to scurry off and buy Jillaroo, I think, for sure. I'll be interested to see what you good. have to say about it. And, uh, <laughs> when you get on to your other projects, I hope you'll come back into the pod and rejoin us. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks. a lot, Toby. Cheers. So that's what